This is tape number three of Thriving in the World, part one of Strategy for Being a Witness, will be the subject of this message by Dr. Joel Hunter. Acts chapter one, verse eight, is the reference text, and from the New American Standard, it reads as follows. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And now let's join Dr. Hunter for his third message in a series on thriving in the world, and his message, Strategy for Being a Witness, Part 1. As you know, over the past couple of weeks, Joel has uh, been outlining for us the five typologies that um, are described in Richard Niebuhr's classic book. Well, we thought... Today, as Joel, you know, is coming to synthesize these five typologies, hopefully, into what might be called a Northland view of Christ and culture, we thought it might be helpful and even somewhat illuminating if we reviewed with you what those five typologies are, and even a little bit of illustration and some caricature of these five typologies with another classic piece of work. How many of you are familiar with Mozart's um, opera, Cozy Fan Tutti? Raise your hands. Okay, I think we're going to be all right then. Um, Not that many. Let me just tell you that what you're going to see here is an exact, perfect recreation of what Mozart had in mind when he uh, composed this piece. Actually, we're going to take this piece of work and uh, the lyrics have been rewritten slightly to, um, to show you what can happen as Mozart intended to show his audience what can happen when conflicting characters with conflicting viewpoints come together to discuss those viewpoints in what may appear at first to be chaos, but what we want you to listen for is the beautiful harmony that can result even from differences. You're not going to catch all these lyrics. Some uh, you're not meant to catch. Uh, Mozart didn't mean for you to either. Uh, Some you won't catch, so don't strain your ears trying to catch the lyrics, but just sit back and enjoy what happens with Cozy Fantuti. We take you now to the Cosmopolitan Opera House. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Cosmopolitan Opera House. This morning, in a rare morning appearance, we have an excellent lineup to present the quartet from Mozart's Cozy Fan Frutti. So, with polite applause only, please, let's welcome our performance. Polite applause would, of course, be this. Okay. Here to portray the Christ and culture in paradox typology, please make welcome prima donna Teresa Lee, schizo-soprano. 
The Christ above culture typology will be portrayed by diva Eleanor Tracy Mazzo Soprano. The Christ of Culture typology will be performed by Master Lloyd Boldman, Bargain Counter Tenor. The Christ Against Culture typology will be performed by the amazing David Chernault, Bass Extraordinaire. And at the piano, giving illustration to the Christ transforms culture typology as he perseveres dauntlessly and cheerfully in the face of portrayed conflict is Maestro Tim Tracy, this morning's semi-conductor. As the scene unfolds, each character tries to explain his or her point of view to each of the other characters. Watch and listen to what happens. Despise the world that you are in, it is simply full of sin. Forsake all and follow Jesus. Forsake all and follow Him. No, no, no. You speak so harshly. Though our nature's humble and lowly, let our Lord make all things holy. We have Oh, what babbling. Instead of preaching, better go back to your cottage to diffuse such windy knowledge. Babbling, preaching, teaching, no knowledge. Oh, let us know your answer, do. Well, you can't put God in a box. It's distressing what you're expressing. For a good is a paradox. <laughs> Listen to me, for I know But our Christ is Listen to me, for I know Listen to me, for I know Listen to me, for I know I'm insulted with this woman She's an airhead Let's not discuss it Let's not argue. Let's be more loving. I don't like the conversation. I don't mourn the congregation. I don't like this conversation. I'm not listening anymore. La, 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 la. I must go before you tell me of your theory of creation. You'll regret your silly thoughts. You'll regret your silly thoughts. You'll regret your silly thoughts. Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like them. 
Sorry and ignorant though they be, but thank you for me. Oh, Lord, deliver me. Forsake all and follow him. Forsake all and follow him. Just hear us, here we go again. What is grace to see? Let's be calm now, let's be calm now. Peace be with you. Let's be calm now, peace be with you. I'm observing with suspicion. They are wrong and I am right here. This peculiar train of thought. Hear the last line. Lucky you are saved by grace. <laughs> one of Mozart's favorite devices is also one of God's favorite devices. And that is to create characters that are so different, yet by their very difference, they combine into a harmony that could not exist without their difference. Vernon says that we're going to synthesize a Northland position. That's not quite accurate. What we will try to do is allow ourselves to sense God's symphony in the different positions. Because all of them are positive, all of them add, and we would not want to take away any of their individual identity by virtue of a synthesis, any, to resolve one into the other. What we're going to do in the next two weeks is one by one see the strength of all of these positions. And we will watch as God blends them into a symphony in our lives as is his character. Now let me review them one by one, tell you where we're going. I will also tell you that it is probably not by any accident, but very much by a surprise, that as these worked out, they um, predict the next five years of preaching in this church that was set three years ago. 
we will spend, for example, next year talking about love and how to love. That is the Christ of culture position. That is the first of the stages toward being a witness in the world. Now, the strength of that stage, of course, is that the Bible demands it, and people will not listen to us until we love them. David McCoy used to say, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's very, very true. The weakness of that position, though, is that we, our, ten, our tendency as we love is to bond at the lowest common denominator. Shakespeare had a quote. It's a freebie. I didn't do this for the other ones. I to the world am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop who falling, falling there to find his fellow forth unseen, inquisitive, confounds himself. In other words, you can't, after a drop of water goes in the ocean, you can't tell it apart from all the other drops. And so the weakness of a Christ of culture position would be a blending in the world so that there's nothing distinctive Christian anymore. So therefore, we go to the second stage, which is the antidote, which is Christ above culture. We must have a transcendent focal point, something well above the world that is absolutely necessary to maintain our distinction as Christians. Now, the weakness of this position is that most of us can't maintain a gaze on a transcendent God, at least not as, uh, as, as uh, young Christians. And so we, in our own immaturity, build little uh, systems that, that don't anymore picture the ideal that God has for us. Rather, it just pictures on how we can improve next. And pretty soon we're mixed in with a whole... Uh, uh, man-made system of self-improvement instead of a reception of God's grace and ideal. And so therefore, we need the third one. The third one is the Christ against culture. We're up to uh, 1996, by the way. In this year, we'll talk about the purity that we need in our theological understanding so that there is no confusion about what we believe and what we don't. Here's a radical call from a group of Christians that says, don't get mixed up in your own little systems now. Going towards some transcendent God, you must know and be able to articulate clearly what you believe. You must have a pure, positive theology. Of course, the weakness here is that when you concentrate on what your own theology is, pretty soon you begin to lose sight that God still operates in that world out there. And you begin to believe that the only place you can see God is in people like yourself. Maybe other Christians, maybe other Christians exactly like you. So therefore, you begin to narrow God. And we need this Next one, this Christ and culture in paradox that says, no, he's not only in the church, he's also very much in the world. And there's really not a way to explain how that happens. As a matter of fact, it causes a great deal of pain to be divided in the people that are in the kingdom of God and the people that are in the world. It causes 
There's confusion. There's conflict. Nothing ever comes quite 100% right. But the goodness of this position is that you can actually sympathize with someone else because you realize the devastation of sin. You realize how it still resides in you. There's no, there's no uh, mistaking anymore that you have the pure theology and they don't. So you realize that sin is still a part of your life, that you're still affected by the world. And you live in tension trying to stay true to God. Now the weakness of that position is, of course, that if you try to do that long enough and you just look at the world and see it devastated by sin and you, you look forward to a life of conflict, you get real tired and real discouraged real fast. So you need the last of these Approaches. The one that we'll talk about in 1998, if you're still around. And that is the Christ-transforming culture. The one that says, yeah, it's all broken. And it's a good thing we don't have to rely on ourselves to fix it. It's all broken. But it's still all in God's plan. It's all broken including us, but we're not beyond the power of God. A position that has its weakness when it comes before the other four stages that prepares us completely for that stage. So we'll talk about that these next two weeks, and I'll give you enough to go on. If you have to leave for California in three weeks from now, you'll have enough to go on. But if you stay around, and if we can go through this together... We will be thoroughly schooled and prepared to be what is our job, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. That's our job, to be witnesses. Now... What I'm going to do for you this morning is a teaching. It's not so much a preaching. And so there's not a lot of illustrations here. It's just straight content because we're going to school. You ready to go to school? Okay. Put up the first slide and let's go to the first of the typologies, which is our first stage of approach. The Christ of culture. Now, this is broken down really into four parts. Into what we need in order to know that we're doing right by God. Into what other people need in order to receive what we have to give. It's broken down also into a shadow part, which is not up there, and that is what Satan is trying to do the whole time we're trying to, we're trying to get on with being a witness. And then the fourth part is an action part that will help us check up on what we're doing. First of all, let's take a look at this one. What do you need? What is the first thing you need in order to know that when you approach people, when you especially approach someone who you think is in danger of ruining their life by sin, what is the first thing you need? Well, the Bible is very clear. 1 Corinthians 13.1 Though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The first thing we need is to love people enough to listen to them. Because the Bible says that if you don't 
have that love, even what you ask for. You know what you ask for usually when you're going into a conflict situation? You, you pray this. God, give me the right words to say. Don't let me mess this up. I want to speak your words. The first thing you say. But God tells you in his word, even if you have all the right words, but you don't have love, what they hear is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. They can't hear what you're saying. They just hear noise, confusion. You know, when Jesus told us to go and make disciples, do you realize where that came in the gospel? That was the last thing he said. Most of us, when we face someone who we think needs our help, that's the first thing we try to do. Do you know what came before the Great Commission? The Great Commandment. And the Great Commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now, do you think it's an accident that the Great Commandment preceded the Great Commission? No. Because that's the only way it will work. You've got to love before you speak. You've got to do that. You can't make disciples without setting a groundwork of love. And the first step in love is for them to believe that they have been understood. You know that from your own life. You won't listen to people who you think are out to lie and do don't know where you're coming from. They don't even know you. And they're trying to advise you. You turn them off just like that. People need to feel like they're understood. Jan um, Silvius wrote a letter in today's Christian Women magazine several years ago, and she said this. Whenever you walk into a conversation and you have as your attitude either a domineering attitude or a, what was the second one, or a critical attitude or a condescending attitude. The conversation has just ended. Whether you've said anything or not. She's absolutely correct. Therefore, what Scripture wants from us is to care enough that we listen. That we listen. Now realize, please, that as you listen, Satan is going to be working in the background. And he's going to try to do two things. First of all, he's going to try to arouse suspicion. He's going to be telling you, number one, that these are bad people. He's going to be telling you that these are the examples of why the culture is going down the tubes. You know why? Because he wants you to speak to them as if they were culture instead of as if they were people. Lawrence Sanny once said, Jesus didn't come to, to, to speak to crowds or to call crowds. He came to call disciples. You don't come to speak to the culture. You come to speak to people. Very, very important. And so Satan tries to get up in your mind. Oh, I'll tell you what. 
They're just selfish. They're just doing this because they just want their own way. They don't care about anybody but themselves. And I'll tell you what, that's exactly why our country is going down the tubes. That's exactly why families are falling apart. You've got to take a stand. And so by the time you walk up into that person, you're loaded for bear. Because you're looking at them like they're uh, an embodiment of every failure in society. And a threat to everything you believe in. That's a person. They've got a story. They do what they do for a reason. And it's important that you understand that this suspicion is before you've heard anything they've said. You've got to discount that suspicion. Realize, of course, that Satan's going to be building suspicion on the other side as well. You you realize that practically all of the great literature, suspense literature has been literature about miscommunication. Take Shakespeare. His great tragedies were about miscommunication. They were about suspicion. Look at King Lear. He was suspicious of his oldest daughter, Cordelia, who was the only one really who was faithful to him. And he embraced the two younger daughters who were trying to get his money and his his, uh, crown. It was a giant miscommunication, and it was a tragedy, and it ended in a tragedy. Look at Othello. In Othello, you even have a little, in most of Shakespeare's plays you do, you have a little demonic character. In Othello, his name was Iago. And Iago sowed suspicion in Othello's mind about Desdemona. So, the travesty happened. Do you know why people have read those plays for a year? Because they've lived those plays for years. We don't understand each other. We are suspicious of each other. Why? Because we don't take the time to listen to each other. It is absolutely necessary that you, listen to this, crucify your agenda in order to listen to what they have to say. Absolutely necessary. Listen to what it says. In Romans 15.2, it says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. In Hebrews 13.3, it says this. It says, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. How did Christ communicate God's point? He communicated his point by having his life crucified. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And what does it say in Peter? He set an example that we should follow in his steps. What does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22? Paul did the exact same thing. I won't read that whole passage to you. It goes 19 through 22. But 22 says, To the weak I become weak. That becoming all things to all, I might save some. It is so important 
that we are able to think like they think. Why do you think Sherlock Holmes was such a great detective? Arthur Conan Doyle. Anybody, anybody read Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, great detective. Why? Because he could think like a criminal. Because he could think just like a criminal. And he, you, sometimes you, you see him go, wearing criminal clothes and, and going down back alleys, walking through where criminals walk so that he could understand them. That is important for us. Now, please don't take that as an analogy to go up to somebody because, again, that vilifies somebody and that plays right into Satan's hands. We're not trying to vilify anybody. We're just trying to say that what makes people effective is understanding how other people think. And here's your checkpoint. Your checkpoint is this. When you can state the case of the person whom you are approaching and you've got to you got to pick and choose you can't you can't you know address the whole world you address individuals and you address the individuals that God brings in your path and you're convinced that God wants you to address but when you can understand them so well that you can state their case better than they can and you can understand their reasons and their goals and their emotions and their frustrations. And you can say to them, let me see if I got your, if I got it straight because I really want to understand where you're coming from. And you can actually state their case literally and put them in a better light than they've put themselves. Then you've earned the right to go to the second stage. That's a lot of work, isn't it? And it's a lot of frustration. And it's a lot of patience. But remember, what God did for us. How he came down and made himself as one of us and following his steps. Now, let's see the next one. There is then this tendency as we begin to identify with them, as you begin to understand the story of someone else, there's going to be this great link. And pretty soon, you're going to find yourself saying, well... I don't know, maybe I better not address this. Maybe I better just leave it alone. But I want you to remember that God sent you there for a purpose. And I want you to remember that it's important that you go to the second step and set your sights not on what their strategy is, but on what God has as a great life to live. Now here, it's important that you understand that your goal is out of this world. It's not just improvement. It's not just getting to the next step. It's not building up this little thing that says, you know, if they'd only come to church, that's, that's, all, that's all I care about. Or if they'd only, you know, stop hitting one another, that's all, I'm go- that's all I'm going for here. No. I tell you what, we live in a culture that has systematically been trained not to expect anything great. We live in a culture, well, it says, it, it says this in Scripture. It says in, in Job chapter 8, verse 13, I'll read it to you. It says, the paths, so are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless perishes. When you haven't got anything to look forward to beyond this world, all you can do is read your newspaper and crawl out into the world that day, your life isn't going too great. You are drained of your hope. You haven't got any transcendent vision. 
It says in here, it says in, in uh, Proverbs 11, chapter uh, 7, or chapter 11, verse 7, it says, when a wicked man dies, his, his expectation perishes. And the hope of a strong man perishes. In other words, even the strongest people in the world who want to make the best possible life really have no hope beyond their physical life. And if you have no hope beyond your physical life, you have no real power. What do they teach you in karate? Always to aim through the target. Don't aim at the target. You're going to kill yourself. Aim through the target. Aim through death. You've got to have that aim through death or you don't have hope. Now, this is important because that's what God does for us. Gives us this great hope. When we, when the Bible says in, in, in Romans 12, 2, it says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't, don't be the kind of person that your, your hope depends on your body chemistry for the day or your circumstances of the week. Don't be the kind of person that your hope depends on how much money you think you got coming in or whether or not you're going to survive just a little bit longer. No, the Bible says don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How? Hebrews 12, 2. By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now you do that, and you've got something. See? And you see something else. You see that all of us were made. All of us were made to contemplate what is better than we ever expected. This world, listen, you know, it's so comical. The ideals of this world. You go to a person, go to two people who are living together without the benefit of marriage. Ask them, what's up? You know, how does this figure? What, what's your thinking here? And they will tell you, we want to make sure we, if we get married, we're compatible. Even though statistics say that there's an 80% Greater chance of divorce for people who live together before they're married than for people who don't. That's still their thinking. Okay? You say, all right, I understand that goal. I understand that goal. Watch this. You say, okay, you're going to get married. Let's just envision an ideal here. What is your ideal of marriage? And they will say this. Well... Uh, that, that it lasts, that we don't get divorced. That's the ideal. Pump up the ideal. Say to them, what about this? What about if you guys would get married? And you would fall deeper and deeper and deeper in love with each other every year. What if you were so devoted to each other that 50 years from now, when your grandkids come over, you love on your grandkids, but you frankly can't wait till they leave because you kind of want to resume kissy face with each other. <laughs> Chase each other around the house. Not moving very fast. <laughs> you know what? You start building up an image like that, they'll say, that's not possible. Nobody does that. How naive. They'll say it, but they'll keep thinking about it. You say to them, what do you want 
on behalf of your kids. What would you, what's your ideal for your kid? You know what they'll tell you? This is what the world does to you. They'll say, well, I kind of like, I, I just, well, I don't want them to get on drugs. And I, uh, and I, and I don't want them to, to, uh, get pregnant or get social diseases. I don't want, certainly don't want them to get AIDS if they can just stop, if they just not get AIDS. I don't want, I want, I'd like them to graduate from school. Uh, if they could, if they could graduate from school and they could, they could get a job and, and kind of get a family, that, that'd be great. That's their ideal. That's the best they can think about. If I can just get through this week and my kids don't destroy their own life, then I consider this week a success. Holy cow. Pump it up. Envision the ideal. Say, well, what if your kids grew up and were wild about God? They could know God personally. They walked around with the confidence and the hope of God. And no matter what happened in their lives, they were at peace. What if your kids didn't go up, grow up and move away from you in total rebellion? What if they grew up and their fondest dream, whether it was possible or not, was to come back and live close to you? What about if they just respected you so much they wanted their kids just to be around you? People say, well, that's not going to happen. But they won't stop thinking about it. You know why? You know why people think like that? You know why they can't dream anymore? Because we live in a country that has cut off dreams. We've got this little bitty system. And all we can do, the best we can do, is not dream for the best there is, but covet what the other person has. Francis Schaeffer used to say, I love this, that coveting was the most broken of the Ten Commandments because in order to break the other nine, you had to first break that one. That's why the other nine got broken. That's why you stole. That's why you murdered. That's why you committed adultery. Because you were just wanting something that somebody else had. Forget about what's perfect. Do you realize this is a joke? We've come through... The last three weeks of government policy, when, when, when the budget is fighting tooth and nail to get through Congress. Now listen to this. Here's where we are. Perfect symbolism. The best victory that can be won by two votes in today's Congress is to present a budget that says it's deficit reduction... But even if it succeeds, the absolute best it can hope for is to slow down the rate at which we're going into debt. That's the ideal. That's the way this whole world is. If I can just slow down the rate at which my life is falling apart. That's how we live. You know what? Chomp on this. Our race was made for Eden. Listen to this. We were made 
for heaven. Those of you who know Christ, you were made to live in heaven. How in the world can you be satisfied with wanting what someone else has? Now, God has much bigger plans, much bigger ideals. You plant those ideals and watch what happens. Don't settle. Let me say that again. Don't settle for anything less than what God made you for. People haven't sold out to the devil. People have settled for the world. There's a vast difference. The first temptation Jesus had from Satan was to settle for the world. He came to Jesus in the desert. And he said, I give you worldly things. I give you bread. I'll give you fame, spectacular fame. All of the kingdoms of this world I'll give you if you just settle up with me right now. A paradise wasn't enough for Adam, but a desert was enough for Jesus because he knew that's not where he was going to live forever. Do you know that's where you're not going to live forever? We're made for the ideal. We're met. St. Augustine said, you set eternity in our hearts. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Now, go to somebody, listen to them. Crucify your temptation to speak. You listen till you understand, till you can repeat word for word their reasons and their goals and their feelings. And then begin to speak about the ideal. Take them way beyond where they think they could go until they begin to think, you suppose I could? No, I could never get there on my own. Then we're all set. Because Jesus said it over and over again, all things are possible with God. What's impossible with man is not impossible with God. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. First two stages. Come back next week. Pray with me, would you? God, we want to give you glory. We're not here to convert people to our way of life. We're not all that good at it ourselves. We're just here to speak of the things that you want to offer people. We're here to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and call out to whomever would listen what you have for their lives. Father, I realize this morning there may be some people who drug in here and they were on their last leg because they've been out there and they have not felt your presence. They don't know you, but they'd like to. And they don't want to just get to heaven. They want to get heaven into them. God, if you have them ready this morning, if this would be the day
that you call to them and they listen. Let them invite Christ into their hearts right now. Let them say, Jesus, come in. I'm tired of fighting it. I'm tired of fighting you. As a matter of fact, I am so ready for you to take my life and to make of it whatever will benefit and glorify God. I'm ready. Come live in my heart. Use me. And for the rest of us, God, teach us. We know it will take time, but this week, if you would just help us listen,